1: Welcome to the Build Business Acumen podcast, where we deliver practical knowledge and powerful guidance. Here is your futuristic host, Nathaniel Schouler.
2: Today I'm interviewing Dawna Jones, and she's the author of Decision Making for Dummies for the 21st Century. She's also a best-selling co-author from Hierarchy to Performance. She's Unearthing Human Organizational Potential in Leaders and Decision Makers Through Expanding Adaptability. She also runs the Insight to Action Inspirational Insights Podcast. She also contributes to the HuffPost, hosts workshops and speaks to, of course, transform mindsets and business culture. Well, it's great to see you, Donna, and I'm really quite interested to hear what you got to say. We've got some fa- fantastic topics we're going to talk about today.
0: Thanks, Nate. I'm interested in hearing what I'm going to say too. <laughs> 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 and most importantly, we're going to have a fun conversation. So that I hope, yeah, to have yeah we time. are.
2: And yeah. you know, I know you know a lot about all of these topics because you've written, you've written, you've written a best-selling best-selling book and some some other books as well and I'm, I'm quite interested to hear about the decision-making Strategy for dummies because that's <laughs> quite quite interesting decision-making for me I, I it causes me a headache. I mean, you know when 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 I get too much on my brain I mean, I'm going through a lot of stuff personal stuff as well and business stuff And working, you know, like people in in life, even if you're in your own business or you're not, if you're working within a corporation, you have so much on your mind and it can be, it can be sort of almost debilitating with, with, with decisions because you don't really, you don't know, you know, do you send that email or not, you know, and where, where do you start with decision making?
0: A great question. And, and you know, it's funny, because when I was writing decision making for dummies, or or the proposal for it, I was in California in Ohio, And in some like just and, and somebody told me asked me that same question. They said, What is the key to decision making? And, and the answer was self awareness. And I didn't actually premeditate that answer at all. But I realized that when you're aware of how you're feeling, where you're what you're thinking, where your focus is going, you know, what what, what you're feeling in terms of overwhelm or balance or whatever it happens to be, then you can make the decisions that correct the situation. So you can actually make the, the optimal decision. So I think it's that self-aware, self and contextual awareness, you know, what's going on for me and what's going on in this environment that's having an impact on me. So it's those two together that kind of have a little bit of a dynamic dance happening.
1: Right,
2: right. I just put one of these massive sweets in my mouth. So
0: <laughs> I couldn't help it. It
2: got to the point in the afternoon where I just, you know, I've worked really hard and and literally I just needed a bit of a sugar boost, you know. So with all that said, there are all sorts of different sort of types of decisions that we have to make, right? And, you know, some of them are going to be more important than others, obviously. But so how do you stop the paralysis of of like just delaying making the decision? How do you, how do you stop that in, in, in people's minds?
0: Yeah, there's a couple of ways of answering that. I mean, generally what I look at decision-making, I'm looking at it through the lens of biology and what an architect recently called our environmental physics uh, because that, that helps you understand what are the things that I can't see? How are they impacting my emotions about this? So in generally delays, you know, procrastination or delays, are going to have something to do with either it's a really low priority that you're trying to make it a higher priority, or it's something that you're somewhat afraid of, and in terms of its scope or its size, or maybe it's stepping outside of the comfort zone. Variety of different reasons there, and the opportunity is to figure out which one that is, and and then just allow yourself to to step forward in the sense of if, you know, if I make a mistake, it, it, I can learn from it. You can always learn from that. So. That's not true if you're a doctor <laughs> you know, or an airline pilot. Well, a little bit yeah. different. Matter. But those kind of, yeah. those environments are also designed for mentorship. And so there's there's always checks and balances in those environments. So I'm talking here about more day-to-day kinds of things where you've got a dream that you've wanted to put into play in your life and, and you're, you've been putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And, and frequently sometimes what happens is life just gives it the – option it gives you pink slip or something and says okay off you go now <laughs> and and then people realize okay this is my chance to do what i really want right so yeah now the other part of it is overwhelm uh and overwhelm usually happens because people are trying to process everything cognitively and that part of the of the uh, decision making you know dynamic that you've got going on is, is slow it's it can only handle so many units of data at any given point in time and so in in the world that we live in which is you know complex moving fast uncertain unpredictable all those things you, you actually have an opportunity to, to bring online more uh, capacity to sense your way through things so you don't you can take the you know the beta you know the cognitive processing offline and just allow the information to come in and then and then work with it that way. So so largely, when you when you are working with uh, cognitive overload, it's time to go for a walk in the park. You know, take some time out, visit a dog, visit a friend. You know, any any place where you can bring your brain your brainwaves down to a you know a calmer state. Even those coloring, you know, the coloring, just anything to to shift it out of that you know rapid fire uh, beta um, right. state. And, and yeah, and then and then you can go back and look at it. So. Um, sometimes I also use a metaphor, like I was working with a pilot, executive pilot at one point, mm-hmm. and it would be more a matter then of just, okay, you're flying over a landscape. How do things look like from that, that level instead of right on the ground where you're being, you know, dealing with things after one after the other. So there's a number of ways of doing it.
2: Yeah. And there are lots of sort of techniques. I mean, I've I have, I have a coach I've been working with for a long time and I don't know, probably like about six months ago. I had so many tasks to do and so much stress going on that I needed a way of a way of just calming the brain down. So what she said was, right, why don't you just draw a lot of draw a lot of circles on a piece of paper? And every time you cross off one of your tasks or do a task, you just color one in. And I found that really, really useful Um, at the time. It was necessary for me, but I'm kind of getting a lot better now. But it is it is it is working out if that task is really important, if that decision has to be made now or tomorrow or whenever. And is it, is it, I mean, how do you decide if something is, you know, important or urgent? I mean, like, because important things or say it's not important, but you know, it will become important if you don't do something with it. I mean, I I have, I struggle with categorizing the non-important, important and urgent things.
0: Yeah, it's, that's a really good question because it's relative to what, you know, is the, is the follow-up question. Is, is this because I love that example you just gave of if, if I make this decision now, then I can offset a whole bunch of stuff down the road. Uh, those ones get typically dropped off, and then organizations are running on panic and or crisis mode yeah. all the time, which means the people are running on crisis mode all the time, yeah. and then that means that people are under stress, more stress than they need to be. So, so, you know, those are the ones that you you recognize if you've got that kind of foresight operating, which you can only have, you know, when you're listening to your intuition, that's the only time that kind of signal will wave itself at you. And then, you know, okay, I've got to deal with this. Uh, Those ones are really valuable to take pressure off you and off of the other people in the, in the world you're in as well. So those ones are the ones you, you pay attention to you know i think there's also especially in organizations where people are running like crazy to get meet targets and deadlines and you know it's really just to say why am i running because at some point you you're just doing you're in autopilot and and somebody i was talking to yesterday said it's like being on a hypnotic state for a long period of time you yeah. <laughs> know I mean, you're just hypnotically doing the same thing over and over again and i think rolling back and just say why am i doing this exactly what is the purpose of this and and don't mean purpose in terms of lower purpose like i'm doing this so that i get my paycheck or i'm doing this and when i say that i'm i'm referring to the fact that it's it's meeting a basic need you're looking at it from a higher level and saying you know what 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 is the contribution that this you know this decision is is working toward is there a bigger goal at stake here And, and can i see it uh, because it, generally, it helps people to see what the goal is. It helps people to know, am I doing something meaningful or not? And right. that helps weed that helps weed out a whole lot of those little micro decisions that will take you there, but may also distract you. And so you can start weaving, you know, sifting those out and and looking at the ones that are really uh, pivotal to getting the goal accomplished.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of people they spend. You know they have to actually check their emails all the time but for people that have the luxury of not of not actually checking their emails all the time it's it's lovely to you know because you can look at those emails and say well I don't actually need to look at those emails right now I've got something more important to do. you know for example I mean if someone makes an introduction to you for example you know, and you know what time zone they're in. Let's give that as an example. Say they're over in America. I mean, I had some introductions from someone who's, who's at IBM today and she gave me them yesterday. And so now today I've got all the follow-ups from all of those. You know, people in New York are following up before people in San Francisco because they're up earlier. And, you know, and it's like, well, are they? am I, am I actually going to die by not sending that person an email? Is it going to stress me out to the point where actually if if I do do it, I'm overworked and I'm exhausted and I'm going to be burned out? Or can I, you know, my brain says, can I leave it a few hours and do it when I've spoken to Dorna? Because my working day, unfortunately, needs to be longer because I have to catch up with these people. So that's how I manage that particular decision, you know, But it's like, you know, for example, I mean, I I had a, people can just take the slot. I mean, like if someone says to me, you know, I'll send someone a message the other day. I said, look, I'd like to interview you about sexual harassment, right? Because this, 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 this is a big topic. And so the lady got back to me eventually. She said, yes, that's great. Send an email to my PA. So I sent this guy an email. And I don't get an email back for, like, it's got to be, like, a week or something. And I was just like, and I'm just like, I'm going to put your content right in front of, like, so many companies. And you, you've you entrusted your PA, right, with, with thinking about how important that is, yeah? It, it worries me that, that people are actually just making the wrong decisions,
0: yeah, that's a really good example because I have seen that as well and experienced this, exactly the same thing where you'll reach out and and uh, it's an important conversation, but it's a month and a half before they get back to you. And I I think somewhere there, there's been some broken synapse in conversation between here's what I need you to, you know, what I need and here's how to, you know, what priorities, how to set these priorities is there, as you're dealing with incoming. And I think there's some a lot of assumptions made well, I know there's a lot of assumptions made. It doesn't matter whether it's personal or organizational communication, but there's a lot of assumptions that get made when the, those details are not, you know, spec- specified. Right. If someone just says, well, I know, you know, if you, I refer somebody to you, I, I'm expecting you're going to contact them. You wouldn't necessarily state that. You would assume that they would understand that that's in fact what, we're, what you're needing. But I think in many cases it has to be much more explicit.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Communication is is so difficult. I was reading something the other day, uh, and actually, I listened to a listened to a Harvard Business Review podcast about communication because I was just, I was just lost. I was just sort of like blaming myself that communications had gone wrong, and and I actually listened to this, and it's like, well, if you look at you know the world, and you look at how quickly the um, we've moved from speaking face to face, to speaking on the telephone, to text messaging and emailing, and then social media, which just creates a whole new complexity of of, of hyperbole, is what I would, that's one of the words I would, I would use. But there is so much to learn. And, and, and what this actually said was that using emojis is a really good idea when you're actually emailing people because it, it helps to set the tone of your email, yeah? So I, I, so I, you know, I just thought about this quite a bit and I thought, well, actually, can't you just can't you do the opposite and write something and say, well, how about I have removed all emotion from this email? <laughs> and that is like, your, <laughs> like that should be like your header for the email. Right. And, and, and so, so I don't know. I think a lot, a lot is lost in translation and it might actually affect the decision making as well. Right. I mean, in your, in your book. How do you how do you kind of take people through the sort of steps on 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 decision making for dumb
0: people like me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing dumb about you at all. You know that. Uh, you know it's funny because when I've been the reason when I wrote the book that when they asked me to do the book on decision making, I was sort of meh. You know because I've been facilitating decision processes with multi party stakeholder. I mean, just really tough stuff. Uh, complex issues across a wide range of parties, and I sort of like I was like, okay, I'm done with that. And then when they came along and asked me to do that, and I thought, you know, really, it's the doorway just about everything. It's the doorway to who we become when challenged as individuals. How what an or who you know what role an organization plays in the world today, what role a business plays in the world today. So I thought, gosh, I, I I better take another look at this and and dig a little bit deeper. And so I did. And of course, what I realized was. When I've facilitated these multi-party uh, conversation, stakeholder decision-making, which is you take, the, you take it apart, you've got all the screen criteria, all the linear things that we recognize. And what I've learned is that people will invariably feel better when they've made that decision intuitively as well. So they, you know, all the numbers and facts will add up, all the linear side of it, but then there'll be this, this intuitive leap of faith that says, let's go here. And and it's it's it, that's really what what I found I was doing when I started writing it, because, yes, there's the sequential gather your data, look at your options, you know, very linear. It never works like that. It's a very messy process. Let's face it. Right. And oh, so, yeah. it's it, you know, in a perfect world, it would look like that. But this world is, you know, you're not going to have all the data you need when you need it. And so when I started working on it, I thought, well, who, who else has been doing some really interesting work in the field of intuition and, and just merging these two domains of, of oneself together? And Gary Klein's work was brilliant, and naturalistic decision-making, and he was, con- he was a contributor in terms of helping me. I translated his, his, his map, which was part of the U.S. military conversation about how we actually intuitively file through multiple options and pick one in a millisecond less than a millisecond wow and so we you know this is this is where we have to go to because a good you know i have seen 90 to 95% of the decisions we make every day are not you know we're not consciously aware but we give all the attention to the ones that we are consciously aware of you know the, yeah. the ones where we've got the options and we can you've got the time to think it through but at the executive level you know you, you are taking in information along the way data along the way data points along the way, including hopefully emotions, yeah. because if you don't, you're not going to get your timing right. And then, and, or the psychology of the situation uh, accurately uh, assessed or understood. And then, and then you make an, you know, that intuitive leap, you know, most of those strategic decisions at the top are extremely, they follow that, that blend, whether it's intuition, rational, or rational intuition, it, it doesn't matter so much the order so, so there was that element of it. And then there was also knowing what I'd learned about the heart math work about, you know, the heart's intelligence and, and just simple basic anatomy, which is, you know, the vagus nerve and, and, uh, the information going from the heart to the brain. So it, it, it's all of these things blended together. And, and then what I also added to that was my own experience working with groups, uh, working with groups on, as I said, tough stuff. But then there's the personal experience, you know, the personal growth, the, the side of, of what do you do when you're really challenged and how does stress take you offline? So naturally that takes you into the neuroscience of the whole thing. And, and there's a lot less of that in, in the decision making for Dummy's book, more of the biology and the, you know, the workplace environment kind of uh, right. conversation. But but those are the things. So it sounds complicated or complex, if you will, depending. You know the, the, that those two different domains. If you, but but re- realistically, it's more a matter of just paying attention to what's going on, and and yes, there's a role for linear and there's a role for intuitive, and quite frequently the best option is to have those. The best approach is to blend those two and and knowingly do so.
1: Right.
2: Yeah. My dad, my dad has this site. He, he says, right. What you do is, is you get a piece of paper and you, and you just draw a line down the middle and then one side you write, you know, this is, this is one decision. And then this is, this is one, this is the plus points and this is the bad points. You see, that's, that's what he said to do. I quite like that. I quite like that idea. You
0: know? Yeah. It, it, but, it has been proven <laughs> to not be as accurate as one would hope. Um, you know, I, th- I think the statistics are that if you've got three valid, viable options to look at, you're statistically going to be more accurate than you would be if you've got binary, this or this. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, of course, if you're working with a three-year-old and you're trying to get them to dress, sometimes binary works just fine. You want to wear this or that? <laughs> but, but, but when you're working in, in the context of organizational larger decisions that have bigger impact, then, then you're looking for three viable options. Right. Okay. And when people are afraid, what they do is they narrow it down to one. They say, this is the only thing we've got in front of us. It's the only option we've got. And that sometimes is true. No, mm-hmm. you know, no question. But the other question is, well, what else have we not considered that we could put on the table and need to look at? What, what outlier ideas can we bring in and take a look at? Because more often than not, organizations push conformity to right. an excruciating extent. And when they do that, they eliminate all those outlier and innovative approaches that could have both mitigated the risk and or created an innovative moment. And, right. and so that's, that's the other reason why, why I suggest at least bringing, bringing the options in from the outlying thinking. You know, the, the, the people that you would normally go, oh, they're crazy, they come up with the craziest ideas. Super go get them. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is innovate. You know, it's an innovative mindset, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. really, really important. There's so much. I've been talking a lot to a lot of people about that recently. I talked talk to, um, what's his name? Dr. Churchill, Dr. Pano Churchill yesterday or the day before yesterday. He's the, He's the founder of American angels. They do like, um, you know, angel investment and stuff, but We were talking about decision making and like growth hacking and, you know, innovation and stuff like that. It's fascinating. Really, really interesting. I'll let you know when that's when that's out there. Um, But I think we should move on to the next uh, to the next topic. Um, I know you're also very knowledgeable about organisational strategy management and how strategy changes when there's exponential change underway. And it's like a mindset shift, right?
0: Massive, absolutely massive.
2: <laughs> Tell me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How do we begin? Um, you know, one of the, i think the simplest way of putting it is that traditional strategy. And I mean, again, I facilitated a ton of that. Uh, traditional strategy is based on here we are now, and here's where we want to be in the future. And mm. then the strategic part is the two between the two goalposts. Mm-hmm. here Here we are now, we don't know what the future is going to look like you You no longer have that goalpost. so what you're doing then is 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 rethinking it completely different and bringing it back down to how can we what what, what do we what's our purpose what's our higher purpose what do we really want to do in the world, yeah. making a difference and of course, if companies are not looking at regenerating the nature systems that they've been drawing down on for you know hundreds of years a couple hundred years of of, of com- commerce commercial yep. endeavor then they need to be yep. because that is the the big one of the biggest threats we've got both whether it's climate change or uh, at the top of the list or ecological breakdown that is a massive challenge yeah. for civilization and so if companies are not looking at that and saying look how can we collectively put our wider band of intelligence on this then they need to be that's that's critically important so so I think that's what we're starting to look is, is, is these companies that are doing exponential work are thinking way past what am I going to do three, five years from now? They're thinking, what is the big contribution? What's the highest, you know, the 10x goal, if you put it in Google or XPRIZE terms, you know, right. what's the 10x goal? And then, and then you can bring that back down to what do I do in the next period of time, but mindful that that goal is always moving, that there's always dyna- you know, a dynamic. And so again, you know, decision making has always been designed around predictability and linear. If we do this, causality. If we do this, then this will happen. If we do that, that. will. There's nothing guaranteeing that. So you really have to pay attention. Uh, It means, you know, not falling asleep once the decision has been made, but going back and saying, how did this play out? Did, did it go right or wrong? If it went badly wrong, we need to learn from that process, yep. not ignore it, not try to pretend it didn't happen or, or yeah. that was, not, it's not my fault, <laughs> but, but but more, what did happen? What how can we learn from that? So I think that's where strategy starts taking your smack into a growth mindset and looks at it very much in terms of what's emergent and responding to what's emergent. So it's not so much not saying, well, there's no plan. No, not that, but, but it's to say, it, you know, if you, if you set it, if you break it into goals, then then you're at, you're in, you know you're adding it. You're working at it one bit at a time. And I hope that distinction is clear, because it's it's there's this is not the opportunity we have today to really look at things and and go re- reach reach larger, much much larger. I think that's the where human ingenuity and engagement uh, is really sourced in those bigger bigger 10x goals
2: right so it's really down it's really back into the corporate social responsibility and and actually you know what what do what does our enterprise want to do and then actually involving the people externally internally to move that forward, right i mean because we can all make a difference but the, the, then you've got a then you've got an even bigger issue if you like which is the governmental level and you've got countries who are, you know, potentially not actually going to help very much. I mean, you, you know, you, we've got Canada, which is doing a great job, right? We've got, we've got, um, you know, certain European countries that 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 are amazing in terms of recycling. Like Sweden is just insane, yeah. But then we've also got China, who have got all this innovation, and they've said, well, yeah, we can, you know, we can clear up. The smog and whatever and create all these amazing innovations but then they won't sign a sign a document or a treaty to move move forward so so then what you're saying is is that it needs to be more around the businesses Uh, and what I struggle with thinking about is how that fits in with the government you see I think that I think there needs to be more of a a collaborative approach myself that's how I'm looking
0: at it. It would be lovely to have that, but you know the reality is that Richard Barrett, a colleague of mine, did, did uh, nation-state consciousness. Mm-hmm. And when you look at through nations through that lens, you can see they're not capable some of them at least, they're not capable of making those big decisions. They're, they're not capable of working with complex no. issues because they, they're working at basic needs. you know, they're, they're right. still working at that level. And so which is totally fair. Yeah. The distinction is that in order to meet those basic needs, this is where we have to get extremely ingenious. So we're not just doing it through power or corruption and all those negative kinds of things, but we're doing it using some ingenuity again. So, so I think this is where business leads. And I also think it's where citizens lead and it would be ideal if government stepped in. Sometimes yeah. they do, sometimes they sabotage efforts. Uh, but I also think that this is where business can do a lot to help. Um, yeah ensure that or mitigate that risk it doesn't mean it's going to be perfect we've got nations that will trump that as well but it still means that we've got the opportunities to try something else
2: yeah but but in terms of of actually mon i mean we need to monitor what's going on don't we as an enterprise yep. uh, each department needs to monitor what's going on within their particular remit and then they need to go to the ceo or their line manager or you know whatever whomever and then actually say well this is a risk this is something that that can potentially really hurt our business we need to do something about it and then and then someone makes a decision somewhere to give them the budget because it's all around budget isn't it everything's to do with budget right so then it's like well how are we going to actually do something about this what what are we going to do and you know is is that is that is that thing we're going to do going to actually help or is it really just a sort of bit of a shallow late effort, you know?
0: You know, I appreciate that question because I just was an article on purpose washing and I thought, Oh no, they're taking absolutely everything that has meaning and turning it into something that doesn't have meaning anymore. And, and this is, you know, if we look at the source of depression and anxiety, in the world today, it's got a lot to do with this connection from what has meaning. So a couple of things, I mean, you mentioned earlier, social, corporate social responsibility. I think it's just about responsibility, period. And let's be responsible for our people, for the social interactions, because when we're responsible for the social interactions, then high quality ones, we actually make better decisions as an entire company. Right. When you're working in hierarchies, hierarchies use control in a centralized way, typically you don't get necessarily rid of the hierarchy, but you use control differently. You, you release, you know, the need to control risk. You, you have to manage change and all of these things. And and you, you instead work with them as, as you know, as opportunities to gain more agility in thinking, agility in response, uh, escalate those issues faster and pull out the, the, uh, the holding, the limiting patterns that hold things back. So, most organizations that are built on hierarchies like that, middle or large, doesn't matter, are built for stability and they're built for conformity. They don't right. like surprises. That's the neuroscience of it all. Right. They do not like surprises. And so when the surprise comes, they're gonna do their best to kinda, of, you, know, you know, just sort of either ignore it and hope that nothing happens, or, or uh, reduce, you know, reduce it down to something they feel like can control. And that's kind of like in terms of personal growth for business, that's like completely walking away from the opportunity to make a big jump in 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 contribution in role, you know, and in profitability overall. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm I'm trying to offer a different way of seeing that um, because
2: I get it. What what you're what you're referring to is a kind of innovative thinking isn't it really it's a it's a it's a mindset of of growth which which just enables people to take the right ideas to the right people and those people will will in essence they will listen to the right those ideas and if they think that they are you know really going to make a difference then someone's going to do something about it quite quickly i mean that's it's really about being more Japanese in, in, in management style, right like more more consensus instead of kind of Yes, there's a hierarchy, but there must be a communication method to get from here to there quickly you
0: know? Yeah, that's true. But and again in hierarchies, which you've also got are, are places people who are associate leadership with authority and so they will use that authority to make themselves feel better about themselves on whatever level of need is going on for them. No. And, and that's the other, that's the other opportunity for growth in this. So that if someone raises a risk, then whistleblowers or that, that whole scenario whistleblower is a tremendous opportunity to see what happens when you raise a risk and no. the system pushes back, you know, the system meaning these, this loyalty to the way things have always been done that that pushes back and I think this is where you know self-leadership is is critical collect you know collectively standing up and for for what's right and for what uh what's what does no harm basically so I mean this is one of the things that we put in the from hierarchy to high performance the, the, the the last book I just contributed to which has seven other authors and we really tried to take each each chapter to take a different angle on it so people could see there are different entry points to the conversation and different, different lenses to use when you're looking at your own organization and what's going on in that. So, yeah.
2: That's interesting. So that's all about organizational management, right? Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's also about, because the big buzzword right that right now is digital transformation. So then, yeah. then, and then you have interpretations of that. You have everything from uh, better marketing to, and I'm just going to do a program with a colleague of mine who's looking at what happens to operations when, when digital innovation takes place. The question that hasn't been talked about, and, and a number of my colleagues who worked on the book are, are dealing with this space, but it's, it's that question of what, what, uh, what the impact does this have on people? So when we talk about robotics, AI, all these things, normally people respond in fear. That's yeah. a natural psychological response because yeah. it's or a neurological response because it's one of those ones like, I, I don't know what's going to happen. And it removes an enormous amount of certainty from the equation. But equally, when you, increase, when you add uncertainty, it's an opportunity for challenge and growth. And so this is where, where instead of running off in fear, uh, then we have the opportunity collectively to say, all right, well, how can we use this to advantage and how can we make smarter decisions about it? So I'm seeing lots of conversations about ethics and AI. AI yeah. is developed by people. It's going to yeah. have human attributes. How, yeah. do we, how do we work with that intelligently without just sort of pretending it's not going to be a factor because somehow now we've, we've um, delegated human intelligence to the artificial side of it? I mean, we, we will always be able to, to do a lot more than a machine.
2: Yeah, very much so. And, 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 you know, I was talking to, I was talking to Churchill, uh, Dr. Churchill on a couple of days back about this. And he, he, he he laughed, he, he, he made this reference to, um, he said he doesn't think we're going to be living like the Jetsons anytime soon. And, and, and he just sort of laughed. And then he said, but you know, if it all goes wrong, like Elon Musk, who smokes all this weed, um, that, 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 uh, we will end up like living out of the Flintstones, you know.
0: <laughs> That's great. I
2: just, I just thought it was priceless. Absolutely hilarious. But there's far too much hype around AI and all this. I mean, I talked to a lot of machine learning experts and, you know, one of them was saying that he gets approached by like top CEOs that come up to him and they say, we need AI, you know. And he's like, well, what, what do you mean? They're like, well, we need AI. And he's like, well, yeah, OK, well, do you realise that, you know, you're going to have to increase your staffing by by two times as many to actually get that AI to work for two years? Yeah. And then you might be able to reduce or at least change your workforce. Yeah. And he and he and he and he just laughs. He's just like these people just don't have any idea because the hype that has been generated by tech companies is. Um, does not explain the fact that if you want to streamline something, it's a very specific process. If you want to get a race car to drive around a track on its own, yeah, and have the right speed and not fly off the track because the tires are cold because you haven't warmed them up enough, you have to to experiment and experiment and experiment forever to get that to actually work, yeah? And yes, they can do that, but that's one track, yeah? Right. And there, I just I'm just I've had enough of the, of the hype that's involved, but there are amazing things that are that are happening with machine learning. It, it is truly amazing. And, you know, I'm I'm still quite I'm still quite hyped about it. I'm not I'm you know, I'm not going to lie. I'm quite passionate about it. But um, I think I think in terms of like you were saying, you know, in terms of sort of change management people people you know i mean i've got a title here for for this part of our of our conversation you know why why play and people work more effectively to respond to change right and i mean i think if we're playing and we're working at the same time yeah work-life integration i was talking to talking to mike tobin about that the other day he's got a book about uh um literally work-life integration yeah and and I think that's the major issue is is that we don't really know what it looks like yet we're quite scared because at the moment we seem to be working more than we were working before all of this stuff started happening and I think it's like it's like this pendulum swings and at the moment you know we're sort of over there but actually when the pendulum starts to swing a bit more slowly and it ends up in the middle everything will sort of be a little bit easier for people at least that's what they promised us at the beginning of the industrial revolution you know i mean what's what's happened with that how are we gonna do it
0: <laughs> yeah exactly and i mean i find it uh, ironic by the way you've got somebody in the uk robbie stamp who i've interviewed on my podcast about ai and ethics oh really and he, yeah and he breaks it down beautifully because he he sort of Specifies the areas that we need to pay attention to if we're going to actually use AI to to advantage okay. um, Because equally you can see the ones that are built based on the movies where the the machine we built is gonna yeah. Get rid of humanity because it's the superior being and or Whatever um, But but we've got we've got the opportunity to do things quite consciously and Be aware of it and and that means for example when we're talking about ai and robotics we're not using a fraction of the human talent in our organizations that's why the engagement statistics are the way they are and yet we're off trying to develop a whole bunch of things that will be augment you know human augment human contribution without necessarily knowing how to tap into the the contribution we've already got sitting there on idle for the right. most part so i think i think we've got when people listen about ai and robotics I think they need to be extremely mindful that they themselves are a massive, like all of these, can open up opportunities for them to contribute oh, yeah. at, at much more fulfilling levels than they currently are. And oh, yeah. I'm hoping that they don't do something stupid like introduce robotics into medicine and remove the intuitive part because that is the part that frequently saves lives. Where yeah. the diagnostics fail, there is always that 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 undercurrent of of intuition that pulls out uh, leaps, leaps of of, um, of diagnosis, if you will, that allow for a completely, you know, more accurate approach. So I think I think we've got lots of opportunity here when these when AI or robotics come up. We just have to be not in fear around it, and to recognize that there is places where we need to be cautious, and we need to pay attention, and we need to ask a lot of questions, and makes you know invoke our curiosity. And then decide how do we want to approach it as opposed to just falling into it and, and uh, yeah. you know, letting it run the show in the end.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, what, 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 what Dr. Churchill and I were saying was, you know, he shares my opinion, um, which people actually forget that if so, let's let's just imagine that in, that in 10 years, 20 years, 50 percent of the population don't work. Yeah if if that 50% of the population of the planet don't work what that means is is that there is a there will be an entire economic catastrophe which means consumerization will die okay so all of those companies that have brought ai in and they and they've they've got rid of as many people as they can yeah without without having an ethical approach to you know for instance charitable donations or letting people own a share of their business for example when they promote it you know just as an example then that will kill consumerization altogether and then those companies will die so it really it really is in their own interests to think about this in terms of the change management that we've just talked about because that's that's just like the biggest that's the biggest threat yes we've got the climate change which can, I believe can be fixed. I think we need more information on it. I think that we need to know how many trees we need to plant. And if planting those trees will actually do as much as we hope it would do because there's trees and there's also, there's also um, a sustainable building. Then there's, there's obviously, um, you know, electricity and where it comes from and then, and then, you know, stopping using oil and, and whatever else. But it's like, we, we need to have a total data-led approach to actually working out what on earth's going on and what that effect of the change that we're going to have on that business is going is to do to the people within it and the people who are around it and their families and the, and the world as a whole, right? I mean, that kind of sums it up, yeah?
0: It, it does, beautifully, because it, is, it brings it right back to what's our impact On people on the ecological systems that support us you know it it brings that responsibility right back down to what impact are we having you know and and where do we need to be much more responsible in our decision-making to take those impacts into account and design for better outcomes
2: yeah yeah it's 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 certainly going to be a very interesting few years it's very interesting now on a theoretical level I mean I think you know a lot of companies have started the AI arms race China has has at this point um, taken some of their test cases and they're actually ramping up the usage of those AI um, machine learning software tools. whereas America did not invest enough or as much, so they are they are in essence just doing the trials. But that's not far behind. I mean, I think I think I think that China will have wasted a lot of money. There will be a lot of wasted AI experiments from people that just took the funding and and, and hired a few programmers. But I think that there are usage use cases which are very, very helpful for the world. I mean, if you think about counterterrorism and and actually what AI can be, you know, people don't even realize that when they go to the airport, they're being monitored by AI you know, and if they look suspicious, that computer will flag them up and then someone will speak to them. They don't even realize that, yeah? They don't realize that in the towns where they are walking around, that that they are being monitored by a computer because it's not possible to monitor all these computer screens, one person or 10 people or 20 people, there's too much space. So what interests me is how to actually change an organization but but actually like you're saying you know make provision for the future and it's for the leaders or for anyone involved it's difficult because it's ultimately it's the people who say look i think i've got this great idea where i could use a software tool i know what it needs to do okay and I know what I need to do to make sure it works properly. So my job will be safe. I, will, I won't have to work as hard and I will have less room for error, right? So everyone in that organization needs to, needs to get involved with it. And if I was, if I, so if I was in an organization and I was heading up a big, big organization, I would, and I was implementing digital transformation and I wanted AI, What I would do is I would I would actually get everyone to put all their job, everything that they do on a daily basis together and think. And I would tell them what AI is capable of now. And then I would put that into some project management tool, which would then rank that saving, the cost saving, because the cost saving is important in terms of any accuracy as well of what they're doing, because those are two elements that it can help with and then i would start making decisions that's how i would do it would you do you think that's a fair way to look at it
0: yeah yeah it is i mean again when i i've i've got a colleague who who's putting together an a distributed decision making app and and it will have ai components in it because that's that's where there's predictable patterns in behavior and so you're really using in my world at least you're using the ai to to support the, the, the parts that are done faster, the repetitive parts that are done faster by, by uh, our, you know, AI than, than perhaps humans. So you're really looking for ways to mitigate bias. Some of the human f- failings that we have, knowing of course that AI is designed by people, but, but still it, it, there's an opportunity there through how we design it to mitigate some of the things that, that result in the kinds of decisions we see, it, certainly at the political level today. So, so, the idea that yes, we're going to agree to targets, but then do nothing toward them is it w- would all of a sudden fade because there'd be some different mechanisms in place I'm not, I'm not sure what it would look like, but I do know that we can use these tools to our advantage, but we have to be very thoughtful about what the impacts are on, on humans and also yeah. you know and their play and the place in the world you know the the bigger question yeah. um, and then and then of course, what are we trying to achieve by doing this yeah. so you know, and and I think that's, again, where I looked at it from a health point of view. And I thought, Ooh, you know, there's if you or even a car mechanic, I I have found that when companies that are repairing their cars, they use these checklists. And, and so those things, you know, computers do it now, they run through those checklists. But you will have a mechanic who's got a a lot of experience, really, really uh, attuned. And he will say, something like, and I've talked to them on planes, he will say something like, yeah, it didn't sound right. Yeah. And he will follow that sound and then find out that it was something that the diagnostics missed completely.
2: Right. Because it's gut instinct. Exactly. That's in essence runs through the whole conversation that we've, that we've just had. It's, it's, it's about using whatever method of decision-making you're using but also reminding yourself that you are human and that your gut instinct that you feel could could actually be be supported by all of that data and and and, and information right
0: yeah and if it's run by it we have a problem yes but if if it's supported that's 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 ideal and i mean that's why in the chapter i wrote for for from hierarchy to high performance i I sort of realized that, gosh, you know here we are doing all these self-driving cars and all these sensors, and we're trying to duplicate what humans already have and we're, and that's, that's fascinating because here we are trying to duplicate what we already have, and we don't use it in organizations to to sense through what, how to navigate ahead, you know how to apply it to strategy, which is where we started in this conversation. We don't use those sensory device, that those sensitive uh, capacity, you know, to detect the, the 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 future, we don't do that. We just ignore that, and hence we've got this ridiculous disengagement statistics. Right. But, but then we turn around and go, okay, well, let's design cars around what we <laughs> like our capacity to gauge things. And I just find that so uh, contradictory in, in so many ways.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a very good point, actually. I mean, I think it's I think it's about taking in my mind it's about it's about just changing the way we look at our lives so if you can imagine very few people will have an office yeah if you can imagine that our cars will become our offices so having a self driving car is a necessity as opposed to a a car just for fun or just for get to a to b it's like well you need to have one because that's your office so then the car will drive you and it will arrange meetings for you with your colleagues and whatever along the way. So you could, you could, you know, and it will change those meetings based upon traffic or lunchtime or whatever other meetings your, your system puts in the diary. Right. But, but what you said there was quite interesting about emotional, uh, emotional, social, intuitive intelligence and, the role of sensing overthinking is what, is what you were sort of talking about. And I'd like to hear more about that actually.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, I, 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 I'm not the only one talking about this, but it's very much, how can I say it? It, it? There's so much data in the workspace. There's so much data in the world today that if you, you have to be very mindful of where you patch in, where do you focus? What do you focus on? And so you're always taking this data in whether you know it or not. The, there, there's plenty of research out there on that. HeartMath has done probably, the HeartMath has probably done the best job of putting it all together. And some people go, oh, well, I don't like that research. Well, that, that's okay. But I can tell you from uh, someone who's quite sensitive, energetically sensitive, it's accurate because when you go into environments, it's very easy to detect what the emotional social safety is. And you can tell by the decisions, you can tell by the spirit in the workplace, do people care? Do they reach out? Do they keep to themselves? There, there's all of these, these signals that tell you what's, what's the health here, what's the well-being of, of these conversations how, what's the quality of conversations that can be had here? Can they ask the difficult questions and not fear that they're going to lose their jobs? Is it, is, it, is it a place where you can actually just put out boldly, look, here's an unethical, what we're doing unethically? If they could have had that conversation in a, com- in a company like Wells Fargo, for example, where <laughs> that was just a nightmare and they couldn't see it at the top, but you could certainly see it at the employee level. Right. So can, can the employee then say, look, this is, this is what's going on. I can't breathe at night right away. There's a signal there. This is all the data that tells you, what are we doing here? What's going on? And this, you know, if you can detect that uh, at the, you know, whatever level, if you've got a distributed decision-making process throughout the organization, much better because then it's faster response. You can wave those alerts but if you don't have distributed decision-making, then you have to have people who are in those centralized authority positions who are extremely solid. As
2: Can you explain what distributed decision-making is, please?
0: Well, I mean, basically the, 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 the premise behind that is that the person who's best equipped to make the decision is the one closest to what's going on. and okay. and, and that really gets rid of the bias of, of uh, I'm going to make a decision on your behalf, but, but I don't really know what's going on. I'm working with marginal data, but I'm the one who has the authority to make that decision. So I'm going to make it and, and I'm not having a clue. And I'm, there's no shortage of, <laughs> of commentary on the senior top four levels of management don't have a clue what's going on past those top four levels. So they're missing all of this information. So it basically says, look, we're going to distribute the, the decision-making to the level where it makes the most amount of sense. And, and I mean, certainly they do that in in construction when you're building something good idea. Uh, and, and, but we don't do that in organizations. So, so this is where you gain greater agility because you're, you're giving the decisions back to the people that they're closest to it. They have the data. Um, they might have in, in self-management governance models, they might have uh, commitment agreements as uh, Doug Kirkpatrick, my colleague, Doug Kirkpatrick talks about where where you know what you're, who you're committed to go and see in order to consult on specific decisions. So it, 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 it really, that, that's what, it, what, it, what we're talking about here. Taking sensory means taking into account the emotional, social, and the ecological, You know, what's our relationship to things, you know, communities that we're in, the, the customers that we have, what's the bigger dynamic? Because otherwise these companies spend too much time focusing on inner goals, Forgetting that they have uh, a wider you know, they've got customers to pay attention to and even more importantly society society So it's it's a very big big um, Container shall we say yeah. you know that it, that goes from the planet right down to every decision in every company at every level
2: right, so it, it's it's throughout this is the corporate social responsibility and the mission of the business right so like you know, I mean I was talking to a chap the other the other week about so what he's done is he's created a distillery, okay? And he actually encouraged farmers to start planting barley again so they could make whiskey, right? And and I sort of said, you know, I was I opened the conversation about and I said, well, Isn't that amazing, you know, that you can you can do this? And he's like, well, hold on a minute. This is a serious business that we're in. However, that is a byproduct of this business. And I mean, I think that's in essence what you know what I think the the, the confusion in my brain is like, well, you know, we are struggling with all of these things in the world and we've got all of these social enterprises non-profits and stuff and it's like well it's still a business The non-profit is still a business yeah it's just more focused upon helping the world yeah but there's no reason why a business couldn't actually help the world more than a non-profit if it had the right team the right ethics the right drivers is it's kind of thing yeah
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, B Corps were were designed around that because the the whole idea of originally was that you build value and then you sell it, and and you you basically take that value apart. and And the goal was, well, why why, why do we do that? Why are we doing that? Why don't we build something that's uh, that has legacy to it? It has as a greater value. So, you know, B Corps came up around that and then ran into the legislation that said companies can exist for profit only. They're not allowed to do anything else. And so that legislation has been systematically changed as a result of that, uh, that initiative, but it's not the only one. I mean, there's the book that I often reference or the person, the the, the research I often talk about is Joseph Bragdon's, uh, lamp index, living asset management performance. Which is a research index, and he's covered the most recent is in um, companies that mimic life, and that that is companies that our management model is organized around. I call it biomimicry management, but it's really around living systems. Understanding that organizations are living systems, and so there are ways that those organizations behave collectively, uh, and internally, and in their relationship to customers. They see not just customers, but ecologically. Uh, you know, on a much wider basis, they're more responsible for every part of their operation. And the decisions are uh, at every level. The leadership is at every level. And so he's, he's uh, I've written about that on the Huffington Post, and I've also done a podcast with him, And but then there's the book. And that is a an investment portfolio. And out of that, he pulled these seven exemplar companies that actually understood what they were doing, and and uh, have you know succeeded in embedding it even further and those are the companies that i see at when i go to the world economic forum i see i see those companies taking the leadership role in doing good things so it is business with benefit wider benefit and it does go far beyond social responsibility csr that's just a nice department and if they have that department then there's a good chance they're not doing it uh holistically you know they're not approaching it holistically they're they're just sort of you know, sort of making it the lingerie department, or they <laughs> separating it out into these divisions.
2: Do you remember hearing about that person who was at NASA, and someone approached them? I think they were. I think they were actually the cleaner, and someone approached. I don't I forget if it was a lady or or a gentleman. And someone said, "What are you doing here?" And I'm pretty sure it was a I'm pretty sure it was a lady, and she said, "Well, I'm I'm helping to put a man on the moon." So it's kind of like what needs to happen is what what you're saying right is what i think you're saying is that the responsibility of the business needs to actually be communicated properly all the way through from the ground all the way up so everybody actually knows what on earth they're doing there and why
1: right
0: yep yeah absolutely i agree and 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 yeah and and i also think that uh, when we were going talking earlier about, about overwhelm and some of these other things, I also think organizations have made it harder for themselves because when you are looking for, you know, to make these big jumps in vision and contribution and value, then, then you give a higher beacon. But mo- a lot of organizations have got like hundreds of KPIs, they, they've gotten completely yeah. absorbed in so many KPIs. Why are we measuring all these things? You, you actually mm. simplify. How are we doing by one or two or three, you know, shorten it up considerably. And then you can remove a whole lot of complexity that you've created that honestly isn't serving that much of a purpose. I I did an interview with an energy company in Norway after I went to a Beyond Budgeting. I spoke at a Beyond Budgeting roundtable conversation in London. And and then I interviewed uh, someone from that company later who had gotten rid of the budget in that company. And what they discovered was that when they were budgeting, they were spending 80% of their time looking backwards, copying stuff and putting it forward. And and wow. when they got rid of the budgeting, their focus went shifted forward. They, they flipped it. So, wow. you know, if, if you've got a company that's, that's got a lot of, you know, massive budgeting processes, there are other ways of knowing how you're doing. And, and really? you, you, so you really have to be observant and say, which way am I pointing? Am I pointing behind? or ahead and in today's world if you haven't got 80% of your resources pointing at minimum forward then you are going to get blindsided because the, the yeah. past does not determine the future one bit oh, and yeah. that goes back to what we were talking about with term, with respect to strategy
1: oh yeah
2: definitely so so with corporate or social responsibility why why it isn't a, a department or a tagline like why 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 is you know it so it's more its more than a department, right? Or is it yes. not? It, it should, is a
0: way of thinking. But it,
2: it should be, but it isn't. Is that what you're
1: saying? or
0: In some instances it is, in some instances it isn't. It's going to depend entirely on how the company lives it and why they decided, what they believe about the role of that particular uh, function. So if they believe that that function is something that is integral to their you know, success and sustainability as a business and role and wider contribution as a company, either through social, you know, socially or, or ecologically, uh, then, then they will see that that will just be a a way of tagging someone, a label, if you will, but, but how they perform, uh, will be distributed throughout the entire organization. Right. If they believe it's a trend or a fad or a pendulum swing, as I heard when I, somebody comment on when I was in, in the uh, divorce in this January, it, then, then no, they're just using the title to sort of say, look, we're doing this. We've got this report we put just out every to make, year.
2: Make more money
1: for yeah. the shareholders. Right. Yeah.
0: And that's where that article that I read on purpose washing came out as well. Same idea. We're going to use, we're going to sound like we're doing great things in the world, but realistically we're not. And uh, you know, I mean, you only people you're fooling there are yourselves because your employees know. And yeah. they know whether you're on track or not or whether you're genuine and sincere and how committed you yeah. are to to being of, uh, of service to the world.
1: Yeah,
2: well, it's it's um, it can be, I'm sure, demotivational entirely for, for, for people in an organization. It's got to be pretty awful, you know.
0: Well, yeah, because, again, that's where where people start feeling anxious about the future. Uh, and that anxiety is a signal. It sort of says there's something that needs to be done here. We're not doing it and and you know there's that desire to contribute. Uh, and and that's where people start disengaging and disconnecting. And so I think that's really the opportunity then to go, let's reconnect and re-engage, uh, but but let's make it worth doing. Let's make it really worth doing. So purpose is almost like that higher purpose, not the one that says we're going to meet the targets in the next quarterly target, which is you know nice, but doesn't have a lot of meaning it would be so that we can you know and and so you really what this ultimately challenges and people have heard me talk about this before but it ultimately challenges the, the rigid belief that profit is a purpose and it's not it is an outcome of doing things that are important in the world and we have no shortage of really strong entrepreneurs who are demonstrating that repeatedly and companies as well So, you know, that's the that's the mindset shift. It's the it's moving from that narrow to something that's uh, much more responsible, much wider uh, contribution and, and higher value and higher benefit.
2: Yeah, I mean, it is possible to change the world and do amazing things, but it needs to be it needs to be, you know, the people need to need to decide what that is. Right. I mean, or at least fit in with the organization. Would you, would you say?
0: Yeah. I mean, when I look at it, like, for example, when I was in DeVos in January, I was uh, watching a panel with Matt Damon, uh, Gary, who's our last name, I keep forgetting, but he, they co- co-founded water.org, bringing water into rural communities and their partners were trade shift, the CEO of trade shift, as well as the, I can't remember the title, but the, from Amstel Brewery. So, so they, and, and what they all shared was an interest in water. You know, yeah, because beer takes a lot of water.
2: Yeah, it does. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so there's, they're saying, well, you know, to be responsible, we need to be in on this equation because we use a lot of water. It's, it's part of the onus on our part is to, is to recognize that that, that's an impact we have. So now how can we turn around and, and, uh, you know, support something that, that actually addresses the accessibility to water. So that's the, you know, you're looking always for shared Goal. Where where are we sharing responsibility? How can we share responsibility? How can we contribute towards something that is life-serving, life you know r- drives life, supports life, but we can do it in a way where we either take it on ourselves in a, in a big way, or we we uh, work with others. Um, the example I've long used, Novo Nordisk has done a tremendous job on uh, CO2 emissions, and their employees were the ones that that brought it together. Mm-hmm. So. You know, the, there are places where companies, where they demonstrate how to do it, generally they won't be found, they, well, definitely they will not be found on the unethical list, <laughs> ever. Right. Right. <laughs> they won't be spending their money on lawyers. Um, yeah. They'll be spending their money on on uh, reducing costs.
1: Right.
0: Or finding savings, as it were, to put it more, uh, you know, finding cost savings in their operations.
2: Yeah, it's... Um it's a, it's an interesting one isn't it i mean there's so much there's so much that actually needs doing in the world like because you know the homelessness problem and then the food and then you know the environment and then animal welfare people welfare um, there's just so much that that can be done and well and
0: we just saw you know microsoft apparently has just started uh, donating 25 million to handle homelessness in the seattle area very good uh, you know the tech companies have been sort of coerced a bit, I would say, but you know they're being pushed to to provide some home better housing in San Francisco. I was in San Francisco in November, and you've got people living under bridges and oh, I know,
1: it's,
0: it's ridiculous. Yeah, so, I had
2: a look at I had a look at that uh, on TV. It, it, it's awful, like absolutely awful. Like there are streets of people, like actually whole neighborhood full of people who are just living on the street. It's awful. Um, yeah.
0: So, So systemically what we're seeing there is that the economies, the structure of the economy, there's something not working there. (laughs) And I mean, the the gap between rich and poor is is ever widening. And the question is what's happening for the middle and how can we, you know, how's that going to be navigated in the future? So these are bigger questions that demand more thoughtfulness, I think, overall, but definitely more commitment and engagement on the part of corporations and bigger companies to be a part of the solution instead of the other side of that so yeah. I think you know I think this is this is what makes the whole idea of, of working with adversity as a growth uh, a means to grow both in terms of of how we see things how we use adversity to reach reach more deeply and and use those to create better solutions overall
2: yeah well I think anything that really is raising awareness around around these topics is really important you know I'm try I try to fit in I would say what, you know, an episode every so often about, about homelessness. And uh, that's what I've done. I've got, I've had two so far on my, on my, on my, uh, my website. And it's, it's, I've got another one. Let me see. Coming out in the next few days of a lady, she set up her own charity doing, doing that, that she's funded herself. And, you know, that's, that's quite interesting. But I think, you know, I think in terms of the way that it can be tackled, I think we've got the solutions already. It's literally just a matter of just putting them together and actually making, making it work, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I mean, I can tell you that I, I spent uh, nine years homeless uh, in, in pursuit of, of these, this exactly what we're talking about in pursuit of, of, um, widening the consciousness of of individuals but also companies and taking on a, a, a deeper and wider role and I think now we're at that place where we can have this conversation I've had a home now for about almost a year Not wow. close, but getting there and but I mean I ended up there because because I was aiming for something that the world wasn't quite ready for and I worked hard and you know believed that that would be the the way, way through it wasn't. Yeah. Um, so it, you know, and I've learned a lot, I've learned a lot about the skills that it takes to, to rise above and transcend adverse conditions. And, you know, it's been a tremendous learning experience, but it it is, yeah. Yeah. So, so
2: pain, pain is a pain is unfortunately the best teacher, isn't it? You know, and it's, it's, we either, we either learn from other people's pain or, we we end up just learning from our own, and it's and it's 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 a diff, It's very difficult. It's very difficult. Life at times for people is is very very hard. And anything that companies and people can do to help others is 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 fantastic. You know, and yeah, there are loads of great things going on right now for uh, for homeless people. I was talking to a chap the other day who he he's created a, a, a QR code payment application that it goes around your neck on a lanyard and then people can come along with their phone and they can they can actually pay a bank account which is linked to a care worker so because you see there's a big disconnect there's a disconnect between you give people money on the streets you don't know what they're going to spend it on so then you stop giving people money on the streets because you feel that they're spending it on something that they shouldn't be spending it on right because that's generally the way that our minds work, a lot of people. So so then you you think, well, okay, so what if I did give this person some money and they had someone who was going to help them to spend it in the right place, which is going to get them back into the career that they could have, because actually everyone has skills. We all know that everyone has skills. And it's a matter of, I think, really encouraging people to you know, recognize that they, they do have a genius quality within them. Like, they're, you know, there they're, there's a movement called Genius Hour in, in schools, which is a friend of mine that she launched that. I think it's in, like, I'm sure it's like 26,000 classrooms. So it's like over 2 million children are, for one hour a week, doing something genius, yeah? Uh, they've passed 120 laws They uh, One girl who's nine years old, she actually um, created 11 orphanages in her country, Um, like the stuff that these kids are doing. And they're not even 10 years old. And it's like we need to embrace these sorts of things so that we can actually avoid this potential car crash that that will happen to us if we keep suppressing people because everybody even if you're in an organization and you're not and you're not feeling valued right that's perfectly normal to not feel valued but actually we need to change that and we need to actually make those people feel valued don't we so that so that then they can create better processes and then they can you know find some machine learning to replace some awful things that they're having to do in their job that they absolutely hate and and that would improve their lives because 60% of their time is wasted on on, on on that particular work, just as an example, you know. And on to people management, trust versus controlling, and the difference between autonomy and chaos. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the, the massive shift in mindset between traditionally run companies, which we've, you know, we've been talking about traditional management, centralized decision making, uh, telling people what to do very much around controlling performance. So there's performance management systems and all of that stuff to the other side of the spectrum, which is the self-management commitment. Actually, there's more structure in self-management than there is in the centralized control system. But the point being that that in, in those kinds of environments, in the in the newer, more agile convers agile adaptive organizations, they they're they're running on a higher level of trust. They're capable of handling the tougher issues. They're learning constantly so even when something gets thrown at them that is unexpected, they use it to learn and expand and grow. So you can appreciate the 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 personal shift that goes from traditionally run where everything is based on authority and and controlling or or you know criticism is is considered feedback which it's not uh, conformity all of those kinds of things then switching to something that's more open more fulfilling more more trust-based it's a it's a real mind uh, mess. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, so I put the chaos part in because some people, you know, I, I'm doing workshops now on navigating the messy middle. And that's the part that's in between. Uh, and this is really interesting because when I watch the dynamics happen in, in a lot of these environments, what, what they're doing when they get to the messy middle is defaulting back to the command and control behavior. It's nice and safe. It's familiar. It's right. comfortable. Okay. And, and, yeah. And, and that's where, you know, if you under, if you sort of keeping an eye on things and you're, and you're seeing, okay, we're slipping back here. Uh, people are, criticism is being assumed to be feedback, but it's, you know, having the opposite effect. It's suppressing contribution.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, then, then you call on, you know, you're actually hurt this shift because it is such a, so we're, we're, there's a lot of, I think, I mean, certainly my experience with being homeless for nine years for, that changed my brain around a whole lot uh, because you have to move from thinking you're in control to recognizing you, you don't have control.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> and what you can do is control your response. You can work with what shows up. You can accept what's in the moment. You can be present with it, with what's there. You can be mindful of what you're thinking, how you're feeling. But you can do a whole lot of things, but it's not going to involve reaching out and finding a tool and plugging it in and playing and thinking that's gonna fix everything. So within that chaos of the messy middle, there is an emergent order that, that can shift toward trust, can shift toward uh, greater capacity to learn and work with the unexpected, if in fact you seize that moment, you recognize that that's the direction you're heading in. So I think, I think that this is right now with a question the biggest challenge we have for all economies in, in every nation is to really recognize that that, that shift is essential. Mm. We're not, you know, it's moving away from, and it's not, you know, there, it's not so much, there's no loss around it per se. I mean, there's always that fear people have of, oh my gosh, I'm gonna lose control and therefore chaos will result. No, it, it's changing completely how you use control. Right. It's, it's, you know, it, it's not a matter of throwing away control so that everything goes and, and you watch the press do that. In fact, I, the press coverage of Zappos when it early took on Holacracy was hilarious because it was like, oh, how can you possibly do that? If you let go of control, then everything must fall apart. No, it's not so much. It's about it's about controls, not controlling. It's about, right. you know, it's about using you know, self-control over trying to control others. It's using diverse perspectives and views to make something better and and different than you would have if you just had one dominant view. So, you know, I think this is is really the key to being able to handle anything that shows up right now, anything from natural disasters to AI to robotics to any of the other exponential trends that that are underway. Uh, It's to know that we are each capable of working with what shows up in a positive way, you may not know what that looks like when it's finished, but you are capable of doing that. And so that's the part that I think is being uh, called out in, in terms of self-leadership, organizational leadership, and, and transformation toward those, those kinds of ecosystems of, of learning and performance and creative contribution that that uh, will be able to tackle pretty much anything we put in front of it. that is put in front
2: of it yeah i i think it's quite exciting really if you if you you know because a great leader wants to create more leaders they don't want they don't want to be a manager do they i mean it's the it's the difference between being a manager and a leader right i mean like it's a big difference isn't there because you know sure you you can still have good managers like there's nothing wrong with being a manager is there but if you can give people autonomy to do their job the right way and, and, and actually make it work, then it, the motivation goes through the roof as well, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think this is a point that a lot of um, people are wrestling with, is, you know, especially if you're a manager. It's like, well, what does that mean? I'm redundant or what happens to me? Well, certainly from a financial point of view, there's been the math, I think, um, uh, that has been done on the cost of, of management. And it's you know, expensive extremely expensive
1: mm-hmm. but
0: the real the other question is what role do you play you know do you want to be playing i'm really good at managing crisis 24/7 or you know i'm i'm contributing to something that's important in the world and and those two don't don't tend to sit in the same place necessarily you know usually if you're managing crisis you're just constantly in responsive mode and dealing with stuff that's coming at you but if you're working towards something bigger, then you're very much creatively focused, and it, it uses more of a spectrum of intelligence than you would use in pure crisis mode. So I think this is, you know, where we have to rethink how we how we frame up this role, and 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 certainly how it's delivered is more in terms of engaging others as opposed to trying to control others. You might serve as a mentor, you, but but you're not necessarily. The boss, and uh, to be honest, this stretches from companies of six to six thousand to sixty thousand to you know, pick a number. Uh, it, it doesn't really matter. It it boils down to who are you and how do you use power, your right. power,
2: right? Yeah. And are you are you just obsessed with power and what it feels like, or are you or are you actually being responsible with your actions? I mean, that's in essence you know what it's what it's really about isn't it like do you actually want that person to grow and to enjoy their job and to be you know in that organization for many many years and move up and they might even surpass you where you are in that organization or do you want to suppress them to do what you want them to do so that they just get the job done and go home at the end of the day and 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 you know that's the kind of kind of thing we're really talking about isn't it
0: It is. It is exactly. And of course, you know, the person that's doing the suppressing is the one who's most out of balance. And that's the one who, you know, that's the opportunity there to really look more closely at, at who am I and why am I, why do I need to put other people down? I mean, obviously, almost always it points back to the need for the ego to fulfill some kind of need that, that got missed along the way. But, it it still boils down to responsibility for that growth uh, being accepted at that personal level and saying, yeah, I I need to, I need to do this. So anytime I hear blaming going on in the workplace or it's their fault, you you know that these organizations are running on victim stance. There's no, they haven't reached yet the capacity to co-create with what they're experiencing at all. So I think that's the other opportunity is to, is to, you know, when they've had too much suppression, and it starts looking like everybody blaming one another for what's going wrong. Uh, you've got a real problem in business. Right. sustainability.
2: Right. By that point, you're sort of people are thinking of leaving and, and, and finding other things to do, aren't they? I suppose.
0: Well, you've definitely lost your good people, your best people. You've lost. You've lost the ones that would do the innovation, you know, the innovation and so forth. You, you, if they've stayed on after that, they've probably not got. They, they've they've had to dampen down their creative spirit, right. for sure. Uh, which means that there it's going to take time to reignite it because there has to be a whole lot more safety uh, than there is when you come across a a, a victim kind of workplace tone. If you know. Yeah. Will. It is. It's not my head. But, you know, those are what we call toxic environments. And those are yeah. the ones where the accident rates are higher. I mean, it's just like a series of bad decisions come out of them. So, it, you know, and people are can't, don't have to do that. They don't have to work in those. Um, I know that sounds like, oh, well, easy for you to say, da-da-da-da. But it's not easy for me to say or anybody else to say. It, it simply is one of those things about what will you accept in your life and what will you choose to create right. and, and will you lie down at the first sign of adversity or will you stand up and and see what you're made of um, that book grit was wonderful i read that recently angela duckworth's book on grit oh, and i've I thought, heard of that yeah it was great because i i sort of you know when i look back at all the things that have happened to me i thought you know i wonder what happened there <laughs> <laughs> what what was that and when I read her book I thought oh thank you so just a whole lot of things came into sharper clarity um uh, than than they might have otherwise so yeah I do re- I do recommend that book oh, cool. that's been through quite a bit and wondered how you're still standing
2: <laughs> well I think I think I think also it, it's 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 all linked to to learning compassion I mean if you because if you haven't been through certain stresses in life and 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 things like that unless you really are quite a compassionate and empathetic and sympathetic individual in the first place, it's very difficult to understand what someone else is going through. I mean, that's the, that's the major, the major positive output that comes from, from going through that, you know, stress Uh, because it is, it's, it's, it's stress to the point of desperation, isn't it? I mean, it's, you know, when you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, it's it's terrible, isn't it? And you don't know when it's going to end as well. I mean, my one of my one of my um, regular guests, Mike Tobin, uh, OBE, he he actually um, launched something called the CEO Sleepout in London, and that's quite a few years ago. But they do that every year, so you get like the CEO of Barclays Bank, and you know all sorts. And they go and they raise kind of I don't know two hundred thousand pounds or two fifty uh, every year for for um, homeless uh, young ladies in London, a, a specific charity. And what he said was is that there was this chap came up to him this 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 uh, CEO came up to him afterwards, and he said he said it's pretty aw- that was awful, Mike. I really see what it I really f- you know understand what it feels like. And he said, well, actually, you don't really because. You don't know when it's going to be over, when you're actually out there, uh, and 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 I think that's that's the point, is isn't it? When you're going through these these things, you don't really, unless you've had a sort of taste or an almost taste. I don't I don't think you really understand it as well as you could, unless you know, unless you have those qualities anyway, or or have friends who've who've been through that and actually listened to their stories. It's um it's it's very very tough. Very tough out there, you know. So.
0: And, and that's extremely well said because I know I went through that myself when, when I'd be looking at it, I'd be thinking, okay, well, this is not going to last long. It's going to, you know, you, you sort of make these things up. Yep. And then nine years later, you go, Whoa, that was longer than I thought. But it was, it was one of those things that you, you realize, okay, if I live for it to end, then I'm not living in the moment at all. I'm not using my time well. And I need to, you know, if I'm here, I might as well experience being here. Yeah. And understand what that value has for me. Yeah. And so it's funny because now I can look at it and go, okay, this is about being present. Now, but the concept of being present when we talk about it in workplace is sort of like, yeah, it sounds a little fuzzy and and everything else. But it's not fuzzy when you're sitting across from somebody and talking to them and and, and talking to them and then looking at your phone. You know, it's it's it, there's some distinctions that emerge from those kinds of experiences that are invaluable for today. And it was funny because the head of HBSBC at, at uh, the world economic forum made the point that, that it is those people that have coming out of depression or anxiety that come to the other side of that, that are better employees because they know how to what I call bounce forward. They know how to get through that. And so I personally believe that if you've been through any kind of adversity um, you are better equipped now to work with the kinds of conditions we have in the world today, which are rapidly changing. There's there are a lot of surprises coming, uh, you know, there. And some people live in bubbles of reality where they go, "Okay, I'm feeling nice and safe and secure," and that may change tomorrow morning. Yeah, we we don't know. And so, yeah. but it's that background, that experience with adversity, that allows you to 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 know. That that you can actually work with what whatever is going to show up. It's it's possible to turn the worst into a better experience. And yes, it's not easy. Like a hockey player say that to me the other day. he Lost everything and he was in an absolute mess. And he said it's not easy. And I'm pretty sure that you know becoming a hockey player wasn't easy either. But it, that doesn't make it you know it's almost like if it's not easy, it's worth doing. Because yeah.
2: oh yeah, that's how that's how diamonds are made. Like you know it's like it's like going through adversity is just what what you become from the other side you just become a much more you know i just i've stopped talking so much as well like i can sit there and i'll listen to people like in a social situation and they talk about things that i was talking about 2 years ago and i just sit there and i'll listen to them and and i just sum up what they're saying in like one and a half sentences and then just shut up <laughs> yeah it's just really it's just really funny that you just kind of you just become a different person you know you you listen more you become just just more I suppose more worldly really more understanding of other people and that's the problem is is that we are we're kind of lost in our own selves aren't we as opposed to understanding that people think about themselves like 95 percent or whatever it is I forget the percentage but it's over 95 percent of the time isn't it
0: I have not heard that but I'm I'm not surprised wow yeah
2: so 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 the way I look at it is if 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 you can kind of just fit in with that 95 percent that they're enjoying of themselves then you know you're gonna have a much better relationship with them aren't you I mean that's (laughs) That's (laughs) what it is, isn't it?
0: (laughs) It makes sense. And, you know, the other part of this that that I find interesting is uh, when you look at some people that are acting out badly or or they're they're just not coping overall well, um, there is a point where people kind of want to pull away and leave them on their own and and just judge them or put them in a box or a label, give them a label of some kind and, and, and stick them there. But in real real terms, you know, it, it is where we have compassion for the human condition. This is where we we have to sort of say that could have been me yesterday, or it could be me five years from now. It, it could be me. Yeah. And and so can I have compassion for myself in those moments? And then and then can I have compassion for someone who is going through a rough time right now, and how can I reach out and reconnect? And when I, I read Johan Hari's uh, book uh, *Lost Connections*, my instincts had always been that part of this depression, because my own experience with that had been around feeling disconnected and isolated, and and so on and so forth. And his book really brought that home. And I think this is where we get to organizationally uh, care. This is where care comes in, and this is where we we actually reach out instead of shrink away and and label them and and you know do that you you know step back you step two toward and and you're 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 clearing your mind and working with your heart more directly and i think that's where we've got hope fantastic
1: yeah
2: i think hope is definitely there and i think there's so much more awareness around this now, around depression and homelessness, and, and people are becoming more caring. There's no doubt about it in my mind. But it's been such a joy speaking with you. I really appreciate it. And if people want to get hold of you, how do they find
0: you? Thank you, Nathan. <laughs> See, I'm experimenting with your name now. I've got so many options. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, it, from insight to is the website. It's uh, they it, have to say it's under construction. So I don't really know what shape it's going to be in, but when you get there, but I'm also on LinkedIn under Donna, D-A-W-N-A-H Jones. So you'll find me there and Twitter EPD Donna underscore Jones and Facebook, but less so. So those would be the, the main ones at the moment.
1: Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe and wherever you prefer, share with your friends. And if you enjoyed the show, drop us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.